go ahead and take your Bibles to turn to, I don't know, what book should we go to this morning? Maybe the book of Galatians. How's that sound? Book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. This is our outline for the morning. Just a full confession. We're going we're gonna to park in a section over the next couple weeks. It's chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. And we're just going to be making our way through several clarifying statements that are kind of boldly shouted from the rooftops from the mouth of the Apostle Paul, led by God's Spirit. And it was a word powerful and relevant for the time of the the church in Galatia in his day, and it remains so even for us today. So you should have some outlines coming. Your Galatians chapter 3, take a deep breath, and you're ready. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. And we do mean that, right? We need the Lord's help. So let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this morning. We give you thanks in advance for the richness that will be experienced. You have already planned it. You've already orchestrated it, ordained it. Richness for us to enjoy, richness for us to be blessed by, our souls nourished, our faith built up. But most importantly, you've already planned and have already set out to accomplish the exaltation of your son in our midst. And so we ask that you would do that in greatest measure this morning, that you would take delight in exalting your son, exalting your gospel as we cling to its pureness, its validity, even this morning as we cherish it, as we're devoted to it, as even we want to make sure that it is preserved and maintained and not altered and tainted in any way. We want to be a faithful church, and so we ask that your spirit would sharpen our minds, give us understanding, but also help us to know the depths and implications of this gospel at work in our lives. And so we pray this now for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone have an outline? Excellent. Last, I'm going to mention it. Uh, How am I made right with God? Is it by faith or is it by works? is really one of the most significant eternity-shaping questions a person can ask and answer in this life. And to answer that question wrongly is incredibly disastrous and severe. Thankfully, God's people have an answer to that question. And the answer to that question of how am I made right with God is found in God's gospel as revealed in Scripture. Now, in a day where the propagation of false gospels is increasing day after day and confusion is abounding, it is non-negotiable, right? For us as a church, we must, must remain faithful to this gospel. It's something that has to be protected and guarded zealously. As mentioned last week, chapter 3 of this great book really marks the height of Paul's defense of the gospel of grace. And that's where the book of Galatians comes in. This defense, this rebuttal against those who were basically trying to taint the gospel of grace, that man is not saved, not justified with God, not made right before the creator by their efforts to comply to the law. No one is justified by what? By grace, all God's people said amen to that, through faith in Christ alone. And that such faith is the condition of salvation is on record from the beginning of scripture, book of Genesis, 
all the way to the end of time. In fact, the main idea over the last few weeks, as several men have been kind of working our way through chapter 3, if you were to really encapsulate chapter 3, verse 6 through 14, in really one sentence, it, it would be that Scripture screams to us, tells us a story of a God who has, and this is a key word, always, always justified sinners through faith and not by keeping the law. And so through this book, Paul takes his spirit-empowered megaphone and he points it in the direction of these Jewish elites of his day, a group of men he refers to as what? You remember? The Judaizers, right? We know in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, that this is a group of individuals who are disturbing many within the church and they're undermining the gospel. How are they doing that? Anyone recall? What are they saying? Christ plus, excellent, Gentiles must do what? Be circumcised in order to be saved. And so this defense of the gospel of grace, this answer, this rebuttal against the Judaizers continues in chapter 3. We start with verse 15 this morning. We're going to dive still deeper into Paul's argument and rebuttal to these faith-disturbing and Christ-opposing individuals. Not only should one's experience testify to the fact that God saves by grace. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Not only does Scripture tell of a story of a God who has always justified sinners by faith. That's chapter 3, 6 through 14. A salvation, mind you, that is made possible. Why? Because Christ took upon the curse of sin upon himself, a curse that rightfully belonged to us. But Scripture also tells another story. And that's Galatians 3, 15 through 29. Here's your main idea for this morning and for the next several weeks. Scripture tells a story of a God who keeps his promises. Bask in that for a moment. A God who keeps his promises. We will cover this over the next few weeks because what's presented is weighty and demands our attention. If you'll read today with me verses 15 and onward, Reading from the New American Standard translation, it reads the following. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is who, church? That is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. 
But the scriptures has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Your attention for a moment. Some of you read that and you're thinking that is that is classic kind of up in the up in the clouds, Paul. Right? What is he saying? What's the logic? What is the flow of this rebuttal? What is it conveying? Well, that is our task over the next several weeks. Right? You see, at chapter three, verse fourteen, the Judaizers have Paul in a bit of a corner. Okay, he's just finished proving from the Old Testament that God's plan of salvation left. No room for the works of the law. But the fact that Paul quoted six times from the Old Testament raised a serious problem. Here's the question that was being floated around. If salvation does not involve the law, well, then why was the law given in the first place? It's a fair question. There's an answer. Paul quoted from the law to prove the insignificance of the law. But if the law is now set aside then his very arguments are worthless because they are taken from the law. That's, that's kind of the circular rationale that they're extending to Paul. And he's going to answer them. He's a trained Jewish rabbi, after all. He was fully equipped to argue his case. And so in this section, Galatians 3, 15 through 29, he makes four statements, clear statements, that help you and I understand the relationship between promise and law. And there are vast differences between the two. Where the promise given to Abraham set forth a religion depended upon who? Depended upon God, right? Promise given to Abraham set forth a religion based on God, depended upon God. The law, which was given to Moses, set forth a religion that was dependent upon man. Promise centers upon God's plan, initiative, sovereignty, his grace. The law centered upon man's duty, work, responsibility, and behavior. And so God's promise and God's law could not be more contrasting. The promise, being grounded in grace, requires only sincere faith. The law, being grounded in works, demands what? Perfect, perfect obedience. So Paul sets out here to clarify the differing relationship that exists between the two, promise and law. Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, this was was a pivotal point of contention in his own day. He said the following. He says, unless the gospel be clearly and plainly discerned from the law, the true Christian doctrine cannot be kept sound and uncorrupt. We have to be clear about the relationship between promise and law. We have four of them. We're just going to cover one this morning. (laughs) Verses 15 through 18, statement number one, the law cannot change the promise. The law cannot change the promise. First of all, we have to be clear what the promise is referring to. It's a word. It's, It's an idea promise is mentioned eight times in this section. So as you're reading your Bibles and being good students of God's word, you would begin to say, this is sort of a big deal. I should probably be clear as to what the promise is. Let me ask you, Bible students, the promise, what is Paul referring to? Where would you take someone, your your new believer, unbeliever, you're reading Galatians 3 and it's talking about a promise and they turn to you and say, what is this promise? Where are you going to go in God's word 
to, to point out what this promise is. Genesis 15, excellent, yeah. Right in that section, right? Even Craig, excellent. Even right before that, you have Genesis 12, right? One through three. It refers to God's promise. This is the section of Genesis, which Craig is referencing. A promise that God made to Abraham, right? It starts off Genesis 12, one through three, through you, right? That in him, all the nations would be blessed, right, church? Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this promise involved being justified by faith and having all the blessings of salvation with it. It's something that we saw earlier in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Look back there for a moment, right? There's a great statement. Even resonates with the book of Habakkuk, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what, church? Righteousness. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it also helps to be clear regarding the timing of this promise, right? History and timelines within history are important. It's obvious in Scripture that the promise given to Abraham and through Christ to, through Christ to us today preceded the giving of what? Preceded the giving of the law of Moses by several, several centuries, right? You had the Abrahamic covenant established around 2000 BC. You had the Mosaic Covenant, of which the law was given, established around 1450 BC, several centuries between the two. And here is where this history was relevant in Galatia during Paul's day. Here's what the Judaizers are saying. They were implying that the giving of the law, given several centuries later, had now changed the promise, altered the promise. Their logic was, Even though, Paul, we know Abraham and his pre-Sinai descendants, we know that they were saved by faith. We know it. But it's obvious that when God gave the law to Moses, that the basis of salvation changed. A new covenant was made. A new means of salvation was established. This is their rationale. Abraham and others who lived before the law were saved by faith, but they were saved by faith only because they didn't have the law yet. Why else would the God have given the Mosaic Covenant of law in the first place? This is part of the ammo that the Judaizers were employing, the arguments that they were enlisting. And what Paul was doing in Galatians 3 is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. The law given later did not nullify God's promise to Abraham for reasons that we'll see even in today's passage. God's promise to Abraham was what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant. Now, Northlake, I would ask you this morning, and I'm asking for feedback, that God's covenant with Abraham would be an everlasting covenant. Why is that a big deal? You tell me. What's that? I'm sorry. Our guarantee, our only hope, excellent. The word everlasting is pretty powerful, right? Security, assurance, steadiness, hope, anchor, freedom, right? Galatians. Why is it a big deal? It's a big deal because to agree with the Judaizers in Paul's day, and even still legalists in our own day, 
It's terrifyingly erroneous to say that at Mount Sinai, where the law was originally given, that the basis of salvation then became law in the place of faith. To agree with the Judaizers that you have to do something or add something is disastrous to our faith. And so because of the potentially disastrous consequences that exist, we have to take heed to this gospel-preserving text. The law cannot change the promise. And Paul expounds on why that is the case. Look at verse 17, or verse 15 rather. Number one, you will note, is because he needed to point out to them that it was a trustworthy God who made the promise. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. What's Paul doing? Paul gives them an earthly example for the purpose of explaining a really a greater spiritual reality, right? He speaks to them in terms of human relations. And the argument in verse 15 is this. Listen, when two parties conclude on an agreement, a third party cannot come along years later and change that agreement. That's the logic. That's the Spirit-inspired answer behind Paul's reply. The only persons who can change an original agreement are the persons who made it. And to add anything to it or to take anything away from it would be not only improper, but it would be illegal, unjust. Something that those in Galatia knew even from their earthly experience. Paul's saying, listen, you know this in your own life. I speak to you in human relations. And if this is true among sinful men, how much more so a holy God? Paul's logic is only strengthened still more in verse 16 because he reminds us of who exactly was involved in the making of the promise or the covenant of grace. Verse 16, now the promises were spoken or made to Abraham. Stop right there because you have character number one in this account, okay? Truth be told, he's the most important character. North Lake Bible Church, who did the speaking? Who did the covenant making in Genesis chapter 15? God did. Right, go ahead and turn to Genesis 15 for a moment. It's where Craig pointed out a second ago. As you're making your way to Genesis 15, a a few things we're going to note, a few things we're going to remember and revel in and thank the Lord for, is that God did not lay down any conditions for Abraham to meet. In fact, when the covenant was ratified, you'll recall that what we know from Genesis 15 is that Abraham is actually doing what? He's he's asleep, right? He's in a deep sleep. It was a covenant of grace. God made promise, made a promise to Abraham. Abraham did not make a promise to God, and this is important. Let's remind ourselves of that glorious moment when the promise was made, shall we? You'll remember in Genesis 15, God promised Abram, even starting in verse 1, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. He moves on further, verses 4 through 7. He says, this man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Later on, he says, and he took Abram outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. Implication is you can't. 
And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then we have that great section there. Then Abram believed in the Lord, right? We see this, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Habakkuk chapter 2. He believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And when Abram asked in verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? What does God do? God ratified the covenant by a ceremony that was common in the ancient Near East, right? On the Lord's instructions, Abram took a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and he cuts them in half, and he sets them in opposite sides from one another, creating a path between these slain animals, a blood path. And at sunset, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram, as well as a terror, a great darkness to fall upon And after reassuring Abram of his promises, the Lord does something. He symbolically passes between the animals in the form of a smoking oven and a flaming torch. You see it in verses 12 through 17. Why is that significant? Normally, friends, both parties to a covenant would walk between those slain animals. Those slain animals whose blood, what what was the blood doing? This blood was symbolically ratifying the agreement, sealing it, guaranteeing it. But in this case, only God walks through. Let me ask you, ponder for a moment, why is that that significant that only God passed through these slain animals? Only God ratified the covenant. What's the implication? What's that? He's doing it all. Excellent. Anything else to add to that? Excellent. like how you put that. A rock-solid covenant. A trustworthy God made the promise. You think Jews in Paul's day knew the weight of that? Did they need to be reminded of that? Absolutely. Which is part of the argument of chapter 3 of Galatians. In this case, only God walked through those slain animals, because it indicated that the covenant, although it involved promises to Abraham and his descendants, it was made by God himself. And to Craig's point, it, it was relying upon his character, his infallibility, his unchanging nature, so that it was unilateral, it was unconditional, it was an everlasting covenant. The only obligation was on God himself. That's important and that's powerful. And so Paul's argument and rebuttable, rebuttal is very If man's covenant cannot be set aside or have conditions added to it, how much less a covenant God makes with himself be annulled or modified? And the answer was very clear to them. It can't be. Even God's own covenant with Moses did not nullify or amend his covenant with Abraham. Why? Because God had made the former covenant permanent. He had made it unchangeable just as he was unchangeable. We also note another character as Paul provides still more weight 
to his argument that the covenant of promise was superior to the covenant of law and that God made this promise not only to Abraham, but also to who? Verse 16. Who else did he make this covenant with and to? Seed, right? Let's look at it. The covenant of law could not possibly interrupt or alter the previous covenant of promise because it was made also to the seed or to Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's vastly important. He begins to exegete right here, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Friends, because the covenant of promise was, was also inseparable from God's supreme covenant, which involved the new covenant of the Messiah or the Christ, right? He made it to Abraham and to his seed, one who would come. Now, the Bible's concept of the seed goes back even further in Genesis. Do you recall where, where it tracks back to? Very early. There was one who was promised in what chapter of, chapter of Genesis? Genesis 3, fist pump in the air, 315, right? The fall of man, you'll recall that, right? God states that from woman there would be one born, from the seed of woman one would come who would do what? Crush the head of Satan. Satan would bruise his heel but he would crush Satan's head. God states that there's going to be this conflict in the world between Satan's seed and those who are of God from the very beginning, the children of the devil and the woman's seed, God's children, ultimately God's son. And both scripture and experience reveal in this conflict in really full-fledged form, right? You have Cain versus Abel very early, Genesis chapter 4. You have Israel versus the nations. You have John the Baptist and Jesus versus the Pharisees. You have even Jesus declaring in John chapter 8, you have people who are giving him lip service. But their actions revealed something very different. They said they believed in him, but the resolve to kill Jesus was proof positive that they were not of their father, or not of God as father, but as if they were from who? They were of their father, Satan. And so history is replete with examples of this conflict that God stated would exist because man had chosen to do what? Chosen to rebel against God. In fact, Satan's goal in the Old Testament, what was one of his grand missions? What was one of Satan's grand missions in the Old Testament? Is to try to keep this seed from being what? Being born in the first place. I'll just eradicate the Jewish people. I'll wipe them from the face of the earth. Even down to Herod's day of trying to kill every male child that was born. That was Satan's mission. Why? It's because Satan knew. Satan knew Genesis 3.15. He knew that God's son would be the end of him. That the one who God would send to be born on this earth would lead to his demise. It would crush his head. It would lead to his destruction. This one named Jesus. He knew that all of God's promises were to be fulfilled in this seed, Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it in a beautiful way. For as many as are the promises of God, 
in him, Christ, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. As many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. They are fulfilled in Christ. What is Paul doing here? In the final analysis, God made this covenant of promise with Abraham through Christ so that the only two parties who can make any changes to this promise are who? God the Father and God the Son. That God would bless all nations by counting sinners righteous through faith in His something through through His Son was something that no third party, no follow-up covenant, no other law could come along centuries later and alter or take away. Moses, or the law, cannot alter the covenant. Why? Because a trustworthy God is the one who made the promise. Moses can't add anything to it. He can't take anything from it. And where this was relevant in Galatia is that the Judaizers wanted to add to God's grace and take from God's promises. At its essence, that's what they wanted to do. But they had no right to do this. And they had no right to do this since they were not parties in the original covenant to begin with. Which leads us to the second cog in this great wheel. Not only does a trustworthy God is the one who made the promise, but a transitory law, temporary, not permanent, cannot alter the promise. Look at verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Here's God's point in verse 17, okay? Since my covenant with Abraham was permanent and unchangeable, no amount of time could possibly nullify the promise. And Paul's not done pointing out how the promise is superior to the law because he goes on to verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And you think to yourself, this is kind of getting convoluted. Let's, let's make this clear. It, it is plain here. God granted an inheritance to Abraham by a promise. And because words matter, that word there, granted, is in the perfect tense. Now, our pastor makes a point of this pretty much every time it comes up because it's always, always significant. When is something's in the perfect tense, what is it conveying to you? What's that? It's now. Excellent. And forevermore, right? Something that's been put in place, accomplished in the past, but has ongoing forever implications and consequences. It was granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Paul is pointing to the permanent nature, putting a highlighter on it, underlining it, right? The permanent nature of the inheritance. And you want to talk about polar opposites here in this relationship. When you have an inheritance that's based on law, friends, it's anything but permanent. And why is that the case? You tell me. Man-made, man-dependent, what else? Satan, we have an enemy, okay? And he is real and tireless. 
Okay, okay, excellent. Anything else? If the inheritance is based on law, it's not permanent. What do you know about yourself? A bit of, what's that? Oh, thank you, Fox. Appreciate it. We're sinful. We're fallen. Fallen. We still have a flesh we can tend, tend with. We are unable to perfectly keep the law at all times. And so if the inheritance is based on law, here's the translation of what Fox just said. You and I are in trouble, right? That's the significance. But the inheritance is based on a promise that was ratified and affirmed and made and made concrete by God himself to Abraham and to his seed, Christ. It's an incredible contrast, no? An inheritance that is based on God's promise is dependent upon one person. It's dependent upon God. Everyone breathe a sigh of relief, right? Man is unable to keep the law perfectly. God is unable to to fail in perfectly keeping his promises. He can do nothing less because he's a trustworthy God. A transitory law given later cannot alter the promise. Here's the takeaway. The law given centuries later cannot change and it cannot improve a covenant made by other parties. I want you to wrap your minds around what's going on in Galatia. Let's just kind of enter into the room for a moment. You had Judaizers saying, okay, yes, we love the promise. We love the inheritance. Paul says, don't you love Genesis 15? We love Genesis 15. But the law came 430 years later, and it kind of changed things. And now they have a system of which they were trying to impose upon those within the church and Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're telling them and in effect, undermining the gospel of grace, undermining the promise, violating it by saying that they need to add to supplement their faith with the keeping of the law and being circumcised. And Paul says, what are you doing? Oh, foolish Galatians that we saw earlier in chapter two, right? Who has bewitched you? That is not how the promise works. And the Judaizers are not done and they're not easily convinced. And we can relate to that. We're pretty stubborn ourselves. And one of the arguments that they continue to kind of expound upon is they begin to say, well, what if a later revelation, Paul, what if a later revelation, such as the law of Moses, what if it was greater? What if it was more glorious than the earlier? What then? Well, that's where Paul makes his second through fourth statement, which we'll look at next Sunday and beyond. That the law is not greater than the promise. The law is not contrary to the promise. And the law cannot do what the promise can do. Okay? That's next few weeks. Let's just talk about how we live what we learn. Okay? And we have to wrap up just a little bit earlier, but I want you to have freedom. So we give, we've given enough space, space for us to talk about How do we take what we're hearing, how do we take what we love, and have that begin to ensure that it is impacting how we live, okay? I think one first takeaway is there's a simple, profound, clear, loving call to trust in Christ, right? For instance, every promise of God is fulfilled in Christ. The only way, the only way, let me say that again, the only way 
a person can participate in the promised blessings of Abraham is by how? Is to be a fellow heir with Christ through faith in him. It is the only way. Whether before or after Christ came to earth, salvation has always been provided only through the perfect offering of Christ on the cross. Believers who lived before the cross and never knew any of the specifics about Jesus was nevertheless forgiven and made right with God by faith in anticipation of Christ's coming. They longed for that seed to come. They clung to that promise. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, for you and I who live after the cross, we are saved in looking back to the coming of Christ. When Christ shed his blood, it covered sins on both sides of the cross. The old covenant goes to the cross. The new covenant comes from it. So that the takeaway is very clear and life-changing. There has never been nor can ever be salvation apart from the finished work of Christ. So that the simple question I would ask you this morning, have you placed your trust in his person and in his work? You want to talk about living what we learn. As you open up the book of Galatians and you see of an inheritance, you see of a promise, you see of hope and salvation, resting upon God's grace, how does that come to you? It is not by your own efforts. It's not by keeping the law, doing enough good things, and being a good person. The Bible says you're not good. And you cannot keep the law perfectly, which is what is required. Your only hope is to place your trust in the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed the law in every way. Right? Romans 8, you know this. What the law was unable to do, weak as though it was in the flesh. I love this. God did. By what? Sending his son in the likeness of human flesh as a sin offering for us. The law was weak. It could not save you. The only way is Christ. Secondly, is a call to stop mixing law with grace. I'm going to ask for your feedback here. What is it that we are saying to God when we try to add to the gospel? Let me say that again to give you time. What are we saying to God when we try to add to the gospel? We don't fully believe in the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture, okay? Excellent. Like simultaneously spread around the room. That's good. Christ, what you did at Calvary wasn't enough. I'll fill in the rest. If that bothered you just even saying it and thinking it, it should. Christ, what you did at Calvary wasn't enough. I'll fill in the rest. The audacity of fallen, sinful, rebellious creatures to say such a statement. And yet that is exactly what we do when we mix law and grace. It's massively offensive to a God who saves by grace. Amen? He's repulsed by that statement. Now, will our faith in God express itself in obedience? Absolutely, right? James 2, with faith without works is, what church? It's dead. It will manifest itself by our, our deeds. But friends, by definition, an inheritance is not something that is earned. It is something that is received. That's how inheritances work. And part of what the whole of this Bible tells us is that to work for that which has already been guaranteed and procured by another is both foolish 
as well as unnecessary. And I would even add that Paul raises this up a level. He would go on to say that trying to earn the righteousness of God, the inheritance of God that he promised through faith in his son, is actually worse than foolish. Look at Galatians 2.21. This is something we've already covered. Look how he puts this. He says to add the works of the law to faith in God's promise, he, he literally says it's to nullify the grace of God. It's to count Christ as having died needlessly. Could you make it any clearer? Any more poignant? You're counting Christ as dying needlessly when you try to add to the gospel. Where is this relevant today? Where is it relevant? Someone in this room this morning is still trying to earn right standing with God by being a good person and doing enough good things. Someone in this room is catered headlong into the depraved tendency that resides in every human heart to gravitate towards legalism. And you need to be mindful that we all have that bone in our bodies that pulls towards legalism. We all do. Just as we have a bone simultaneously that at times wants to abuse grace and the sin of lic- licentiousness, right? That's a tough word for me. Licentious. Licent- the more you focus on trying to say it, the harder it becomes. Licentiousness. Everyone, thank you. Grace, grace. God's grace. All right. We all gravitate towards legalism. And we have to be mindful of this. As a church, should we be marked as a people who forsake sin? Absolutely. Let us forsake sin. Let us take heed to 1 Thessalonians 4. What is the will of the Lord? Your sanctification. Work it out with fear and trembling, right? But we ought to be forsaking sin and taking holiness seriously because we yearn for the glory of God in our lives, not because we feel like we need to try to earn our salvation and be good enough. There's a vast, vast, vast difference, yes? Legalism is saying, Christ, what you did at Calvary is not enough. I'll fill in the rest. That's why the whole theme of this book, right, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why are you putting that yoke on your shoulders again? Why are you doing it? Last thing, last call, is a call to apply the gospel to every corner of your life. The call to apply the gospel to every corner of your life. Our God keeps his promises, amen? We believe that. I would ask, do you believe that? Let me ask you, in the spirit of Hebrews 3, where we're residing on Sunday mornings, our God keeps his promises. What does unbelief look like in real life? Disobedience? What's that? Grumbling, yes, I mean, kind of emulating the example of the Israelites. Worry, excellent. God can't save me, is that what someone said? Yeah, absolutely. Like these things we don't say within the church because we know they're patently false, but don't we say them to ourselves? Aren't we often guilty of listening more to the voice of our enemy than the voice of God and his promises to us? You know what this looks like in your own life. Guilt, shame, 
and not running that guilt and shame to exactly where they are to belong and rest, right? What does our enemy love to do? He wrings his hands with glee to have you say in a state where you are not basking in the grace of God and receiving the forgiveness that's already been guaranteed and procured for you by the work of another person. It's not even relying upon yourself. And the enemy, I can't pray to God until I kind of get my living room in order. You know what I'm talking about? Instead of just humbly and contrition, full confidence and belief that God is who he says he is and he's faithful to his promises. And I'm going to approach him, yes, repentant and contrite of heart. But I'm going to come knowing that my salvation and my standing before my God rests nothing upon my own doing. Because if it did, I'd be in trouble, right? There's a song that we sing. I'm going to have the guys put it up. It's a song, you know this song, Before the Throne of God Above. And I love verse 2, okay? You want to talk about living what we learn. And applying the gospel every corner of your life. This week, you're going to have moments where Satan is going to tempt you to despair. What do we sing? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. There's the word. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. You want to talk about how to apply the gospel to every corner of your life? Sing verse 2 of Before the Throne of God this week. Can we do that? When Satan tempts us to despair, upward I'll look and see him there. Okay? Let's pray this morning. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. We marvel at your grace. We're grateful that this inheritance, this standing before you rests upon your work and not that of our own. We pray that that would impact and even energize how we do everything in the next hour. Lord, we, we ask that it would influence how we fellowship with one another. That each of our voices would be instrumental to pointing one another to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the sweetness of his fellowship and communion, what it is to be your child, that we would encourage one another in our faith, that would build one another up. Lord, we ask that it would fuel even how we sing, that there would be no sort of cold mechanical efforts extended from us to you. But Lord, what would transpire in the next hour would be people who are so moved and so gripped by a God who saved them by his grace, that we would sing with the utmost sincerity, we would be sober-minded, we would be reverent, we would express to you our zeal and gratitude in ways which are appropriate and right. And Lord, we ask that the people beyond these walls, they would hear that which was resonating from this place, and it would be contagious. You would prompt their hearts to yearn for what is being spoken of within these walls, that there is hope and there is life and only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Be with our pastor the next hour as he opens up your word, fill him with power, clarity, and conviction. And Lord, would you make us attentive and grant us understanding to that which we hear so that we might be shaped, shaped more and more into your likeness for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.